who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello and happy end of the week, everyone. I hope that everyone is doing great, getting ready for the holidays, if that is something that you're into. I feel like I have just been so much busier than I have been in a while, especially now that I work on podcasting most of the time for most of the day. I spend a lot of time at home and I can just kind of like, you know, pop around to my different episodes and the different podcasts that I work on and edit for and things like that. But this week has been very kid heavy, as was last week. All of the children that I take care of are needing me and needing longer hours. And the family that I work for primarily, I also run a lot of errands and stuff for them and work kind of as like a family assistant, I guess. And I'm running errands like crazy for them and driving holiday snacks to the little girl's school and, you know, all sorts of things. So I've been running around like crazy all week. I've been running around like crazy today. I just got a new editing job for another podcast as well. And I was trying to get that done this morning. It's just been utter chaos. But here I am with all of you lovely, lovely listeners. I really hope that you all enjoyed this week's main feed episode where I covered the documentary Dope is Death. It was originally a Patreon episode, but it was one that I just worked so hard on and enjoyed so much that it didn't seem fair to only have my select Patreon listeners to be able to listen to it. And I wanted everyone to learn what I learned in watching that documentary and also in the research that I did alongside of it. So for any of you that listened, I hope that you really enjoyed it. 
There's lots more great stuff on Patreon where that comes from as well. I am now working on the first episode covering The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Super, super excited to do that. I didn't read the book until last year. I can't believe it took me so long to read it, especially because I'd had it in my possession for so long. But when I did finally read it, I really, really loved and enjoyed it. And I feel like there's a lot of really wonderful themes that are explored in that book. Sylvia Plath's story in and of itself is so fascinating compared to, you know, the book, which is semi-autobiographical. So if you're interested in that, that will be popping up on Patreon shortly. But in the meantime... There are so many episodes already available for you on Patreon that are brand new, that you've never heard before on the main feed. If you want to join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5 a month, I believe I've covered 10 different books this year, and each of them have two to three episodes along with them. So that will help get you through the holiday season. I also post some extra little goodies every once in a while to the Feminist Faves level, which is $8 a month. You also get all of the book club content there. You get these episodes early and ad-free. And I have just started doing little recaps after Monday's episodes where I go up and I chat a little bit more about the episode that was published that day, about the making of it, maybe some information that I forgot to add into the episode that I noticed during editing, so on and so forth. And on top of getting more fantastic content, you are truly helping me out and helping the show out by donating your money that is going right back into making sure that this show can be as great as I want it to be. And the more money you give me, the less babysitting and nannying I have to do and the more episodes that I can make. So it's a handoff. You know what I'm saying? So if you want to be a part of all that fun, just go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist or Click the link in the show notes to get there a little quicker. Before I get into today's topics, though, I did want to share one more quick story. And I believe it was on, maybe it was last week's mini episode. Maybe I talked about it during the main feed for some reason. I don't know. But I'm pretty sure I discussed with all of you how E, the little 10-year-old girl that I take care of, is still really, really gung-ho about her belief in Santa and all of the Christmas mysticism. We were watching Elf last week together, and she asked me if it was based on a true story, and I thought I had a heart attack. She still very much believes in Santa, but an even bigger deal to her is the elf on the shelf, which she has named Sparkles. It's a little girl elf, very, very cute, And this 10-year-old girl is still in full belief of the magic of this elf. So the other night, I was rushing her to get ready for speech therapy, and I had her, you know, go run to your room, get a sweater on, we gotta go. And all of a sudden, I hear this really loud crash, and I'm like, oh, fuck, it's her. Like, she fell down, she got hurt, like, I'm gonna have to call her speech therapist and take her to the doctor, you know, all these things are going through my head. And she's like, oh, no! And I run into the bedroom, And Sparkles, the elf, had been sitting on top of her little mini Christmas tree that was on top of her dresser. But when she went in, the tree fell down, also making Sparkles fall on the ground. And I learned that you're not supposed to touch the elves. That's like something that's going to take away their magic. 
But poor Sparkles is lying on the floor and clearly needs our help. E is like legitimately upset. Like she looks like she's about to start crying. She's like, Sparkles, oh my gosh, Sparkles. So I'm like, okay, well, if we need to touch her, what can we do to help get her magic back? And she said, we need to sprinkle cinnamon on her. I'm like, cinnamon? Okay, great. So I very gingerly pick the elf up. I set her on her little vanity and I go to the kitchen and I get some cinnamon sugar and we sprinkle it on top. And I'm like, okay, her magic should be back. And we're running late at this point for her therapy lessons. So I'm like, all right, we got to go. We're going to clean up the Christmas tree when we get back. Man, what a crazy night we've had. So I take her to speech and I called her mom and I was like, okay, you have to tell me exactly how Sparkles was positioned this morning because I'm going to go run home and fix the tree and fix Sparkles so that all of this is fixed by the time E gets home. And so her mom kind of told me how it was all set up and I fixed the tree, but I left it kind of lopsided and I had Sparkles just kind of hanging on to the tree kind of and I left a little trail of cinnamon from where I left Sparkles on the vanity up to where the tree was. So I go pick E up, I bring her home and I'm like, all right, let's go to your bedroom. Let's clean up the Christmas tree. And she goes in there and she goes, Sparkles fixed the tree. (laughs) It was the cutest thing in the world. But at the same time, I'm like, God damn it. Why does Sparkles get all the credit? I picked up the tree. I made this look super cute. Parents, I don't know how you do it. I like the credit for the things that I do. But it's also, it was just the sweetest thing in the world to see her get so excited and so happy about something that an adult could never really get that excited about. It's just, it's the beauty of childhood. And so even though I do think it's kind of weird that she is the age that she is and still believes so heavily in all these things, I also never really want that magic to go away because that's the real beauty of Christmas is when you're a kid and you believe that anything is possible and reindeer come with Santa on a sleigh and he drops through your fireplace and munches on your cookies and drinks your milk and my mom would even leave carrots out for the reindeer so it would always be little munches of carrot left over and my dad would put his shoes in the fireplace to make it look like Santa had landed with a bound down there and that's why I love working in childcare during the holidays it's just so much fun it really brings back that magic and excitement that I just don't feel toward Christmas on my own anymore So I think I said this the last time I was telling these stories, but I really, really want to hear from all of you. What was your experience with your belief in Santa and your belief in all of the Christmas magic stuff? I know I have a lot of younger listeners, so maybe you had Elf on the Shelf. That was not a thing that was done when I was a kid. So my friends and I did not partake in that particular adventure. But what is your experience with this? How old were your kids when they started to realize that Santa wasn't real? Or how old were you and what was your experience like? Please send those stories in because I would actually really, really love to share them on next week's mini episode as a sort of special holiday edition of the mini. So sorry if you're hearing my dog bark. I keep trying to pause every time she does, but I'm just going to power through anyway. But send me your 
Santa, Elf on the Shelf, Christmas Magic Stories, email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. I would really, really love to share some of these stories next week, and I think it would be really, really fun. All right, now that I have rambled on for, I've been recording for a solid 11 minutes, let's get into the topics for this week. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Things have been awfully heavy on the mini episodes for your angry neighborhood feminists in the last month or so. And a lot of the things that went on this week are just continuations of a lot of the really tragic things that have been happening in the world, specifically when it comes to the war between Israel and Hamas. But because I've focused so much on that in the last few weeks, and there aren't any major new developments, I wanted to try to find something else to talk about. Though it didn't really seem like there were a lot of really big, hard-hitting news stories this week. But one thing that has caught my attention in the last few weeks was that Taylor Swift was chosen as Time's Person of the Year for the year 2023. Last year, the honor was given to President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine in the spirit of Ukraine. The year before, Elon Musk was given the title. With the tagline reading, with a flick of his finger, the stock market soars and swoons. Gag me with a spoon. In 2020, President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris were on the cover. And in 2019, it was the child climate activist Greta Thunberg. And on the very first episode of this show, in fact, we covered the 2017 honorees of the title, which was given to the silence breakers of the Me Too movement. Going back a little further... Donald Trump was given the title in 2016. So, as you can see, the person of the year decision has always been a bit controversial. And it gets even weirder than that. In 1938, Time chose none other than Adolf Hitler to be their person of the year. And Joseph Stalin was given the honor twice, in 1939 and again in 1942. Other times, the magazine has gone with regular citizens instead of authoritarian leaders. And in 1969, the Middle Americans graced the cover of the magazine, celebrating them for continuing to pray in public schools in defiance of the U.S. Supreme Court. Ooh, if I had a collar on, I'd be pulling it. (laughs) In 1982, the magazine chose a machine of the year and put a computer on the cover. And I personally could never forget the 2006 cover where they just put a mirror on it, making the person of the year you. I feel like that year no one came up with any good ideas in the meeting and they were like, yeah, fuck it, throw a mirror on that. We'll make everyone the person of the year. The editors of Time Magazine are the ones who end up choosing the winner for the cover. But the magazine also releases an online poll for everyone else to vote as well. And there have been some really interesting choices made by people in the past as well. This has also been a bit confusing because some people believe that they are the ones voting for the person of the year, but this is just a secondary popularity contest run by the magazine. 
Before this poll was widely used online, in 1998, there was a tie between Mick Foley, who was a wrestler, and Matthew Shepard, the young gay man who was beaten and murdered in Laramie, Massachusetts. I did an episode on Matthew just a little bit earlier this year. I definitely recommend listening to it if you don't know his story and if you haven't heard that episode yet. In 2010, the people chose Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. Kim Jong-un was chosen in 2012, Bernie Sanders in 2015, and in 2022, the women protesters in Iran who protested against the murder of Masa Amini. I didn't know that, and I really, really love that. And the reasoning for this vast array of choices is that time is allowed to feature a person, group, idea, or even object that, quote, for better or for worse, has done the most to influence the events of the year. Of course, the whole thing began as Man of the Year starting in 1927, because who gives a shit about women anyways? And they chose different newsmakers of the year. The very first cover of Man of the Year was given to American aviator Charles Lindbergh. Time had separate Man and Woman of the Year titles until 1999. Although I shouldn't be too surprised because, I mean, I guess there are still Best Actor, Best Actress awards at the Academy Awards and things like that, but whatever. I read an article that Time published in regards to why they chose Taylor Swift as this year's Person of the Year. According to the article, they say that the person of the year springs from the great man theory of history, which is a belief that individuals have the power to transform society. It reads, quote, The selections over the years have tended to follow certain patterns. The person chosen has typically been a ruler over traditional domains of power. Their reasoning for choosing Swift Quote, every year contains light and dark. 2023 was a year with significant shares of darkness. In a divided world where too many institutions are failing, Taylor Swift found a way to transcend borders and be a source of light. No one else on the planet today can move so many people so well. Achieving this feat is something we often chalk up to alignments of planets and fate, but giving too much credit to the stars ignores her skill and power. And in this, I can agree. Knowing that the award is not necessarily for the person who is doing the best to change the world or anything like that, it's really just a major popularity contest. And right now, Taylor Swift is the most popular person on the planet, for better or for worse. The article speaks on how many number one records she's had and how she had three alone this year. And while that's awesome, I believe two out of those three records were re-releases of old albums. And the whole narrative was that if you were a real fan, you would listen to the new Taylor's version of the songs, therefore pressuring all of her fans to re-buy all of her music again. Another thing that I think is kind of shady that she does is that she'll release these limited edition vinyl records and it's all the same music. Maybe there's some like different mixes or things like that with some of them, but it's all like generally the same. And unless you're a major music nerd, you're really not going to notice the difference, but they come out in different colors or whatever. And I remember when Midnight's, her album from last year came out, you could buy like 12 of the vinyl records and then put them on a wall and it would make a clock. The amount of money that fans have to spend in order to create that is insane to me. 
And Taylor, as much as I like you as a person, you were so nice to me when we met. You are the capitalist queen. Taylor's managed to stay relevant through the decade for constantly reinventing herself and her image, a la Madonna, keeping fans interested and intrigued, and creating more and more fans as the years go on. You know, Taylor is a 34-year-old woman now. She is a full-on millennial, yet I feel like Gen Z has claimed her as theirs, and I'm like, mm, no, 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 that's that's not true. And she used all of this self-reinvention as the basis for her Eras Tour, which could become the most lucrative music tour in history, and made a $5.7 billion boost in the U.S. economy this year. For that reason alone, I can understand why they put her on the cover. You made the most money out of every American this year. The film of the Eras Tour has received over $250 million in the box office, and on her birthday, December 13th, they released it for streaming platforms. Unfortunately, you can only rent the film for 48 hours, and the cost of just renting this movie is $19.89, or 1989, Taylor Swift's birth year. This is an absurd price for a video rental. I get that you're being cute with the 1989 thing, but isn't there some other number you could have used? Because asking people to pay $20 to rent a movie for 48 hours is just cruel. Taylor Swift has cemented herself as the capitalist queen of the world, creating a boom in the economy and major dents in their fans' wallets. You also can't forget that she is responsible for the largest amount of CO2 emissions in the country from her private jet. And don't let her tell you she's letting her friends borrow it. That's such a crock of shit. (laughs) Also, have you seen the conspiracy theory that Taylor Swift went to her boyfriend's brother Jason's Jets game just so the Google search for Taylor Swift jet would change? She's an evil fucking genius. So do I love that she's on the cover? No, not really. I think there are people who do a lot more for this world than Taylor Swift to make it a better place. But I understand the massive influence she has and how happy her music makes people. And when you look at it that way, she really has made probably the biggest difference for the biggest amount of people in the world, especially with her tour. And hell, her music even makes me happy. I know I sound like such a grouch sometimes when I talk about her, but I love blasting her old albums and singing her songs with the kids I take care of. I even saw her open for Rascal Flatts in 2008, right when her album Fearless first came out, and I already knew all the words, and I felt very superior to everyone else in the audience. And like I said, I've also met her a few times in real life. I worked for someone that was a friend of hers, and she was nothing but kind and attentive and sweet with me, so I have no real beef with Taylor Swift. I just wish that she wouldn't give in to capitalism quite so much. All right, I really couldn't think of anything else that I wanted to cover this week, so I decided to see what was up with Derek Chauvin's situation after being stabbed 22 times a couple of weeks ago, and here's an update on that. The inmate who has been accused of stabbing Derek Chauvin revealed to the FBI in an investigation that he had been thinking of stabbing Chauvin for about a month prior to the attack due to Chauvin's high-profile status. This inmate is an ex-Mexican mafia member by the name of John Terskak, who has been charged with attempted murder, assault to commit murder, assault with a dangerous weapon, and assault resulting in serious bodily injury. 
The prosecutors argue that Chauvin would have died had the prison staff not have successfully intervened as quickly as they did. Terskak said that he chose Black Friday as the date for the attack as a symbol for the Black Lives Matter movement and the black hand symbol associated with the Mexican mafia. Terskak was recruited by the FBI in 1999 to become an informant to bring down charges against other members of the Mexican mafia, which according to him, he joined back in 1990. He also murdered a man in Folsom Prison in 1990 and authorized the murder of another man in 1998. This is the thing, and I mentioned this when I was telling the story about Derek Chauvin getting stabbed initially a few weeks ago. I don't feel bad for the guy. He is a murderer. He kneeled on George Floyd's neck for over nine minutes and killed a human being with premeditation, with malice, and I have no forgiveness or warm feelings in my heart whatsoever for Derek Chauvin. But this does create a bit of a problem because there are so many people in prison who are obviously violent criminals. How do you keep them safe? I think a lot of people would say, fuck it, don't keep them safe. Just let them go nuts. But that's not the point. They're already being punished. That's why they're in jail. There is so much to speak on when it comes to prisoners' rights and so on and so forth. There are so many people in jail who have been wrongfully imprisoned, and it is such a complicated issue, but it does make it a little bit different when someone who has been painted as such a villain is the one who has been attacked. I think it can be a little bit easier for us to lack empathy for the situation. But unfortunately or fortunately, however you choose to see it, we do need to keep our prisoners safe and make sure that more crimes are not being committed. I feel like there would be nothing more terrifying in this world than working at a prison and being responsible for violent criminals not absolutely murdering each other every second of the day. It doesn't seem like much fun. Either way, Chauvin seems to be on the mend. He seems to be okay. And this guy is probably going to get even more time added to his sentence for this attack. But his name was in the papers. It seems like the notoriety he wanted, he's getting in a way, so there you have it. All right, that's everything that I have for you today. Please send me in your Santa, Elf on the Shelf, Christmas magic stories, whatever you want to call them. Email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. And if you don't follow me on Instagram, certainly do so because that is where you will get all of the updates with anything that's going on with the show, with me, so on and so forth. But send me in those stories. I think it's going to be really, really fun next week. Also, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or click the link in the show notes. This will be the last month of the Angry Feminist Book Club so that my brain doesn't go absolutely insane. And I am covering The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. You don't want to miss it. That episode should be up in a few days as I am just finishing up the script writing for that now. 
And last, but most certainly not least, if you are a listener and you enjoy the show and you think others would too, the best present you can give me this holiday season is hopping over to that Apple Podcast app, leaving a five-star review and a quick sentence as to why you enjoy the show. It truly does help other people hit play on their first episode more than anything else, and I really, really appreciate getting all of those lovely reviews. Okay, that is everything that I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.